Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. This week's guest is Jason Sanders, Director of Cultivation at Texas Original. Jason earned his bachelor's degree in horticulture at Texas State University, along with his master's degree in agriculture education. He went on to become an adjunct professor at Texas State, teaching solid waste management and planning. From there, his passion for closing the loop of soil nutrients through the composting process led him to build award-winning commercial compost programs in his hometown of Austin, Texas, as well as nationally at music festivals, restaurants, hotels, and corporate campuses. Jason's passion for cultivating soils carried over to cultivating cannabis professionally in Mendocino, California in 2018. Jason now serves as a director of cultivation at Texas Original, leading the way for Texans to have access to medical cannabis. Thank you for listening. everybody. My name is Dr. Nadia Saba. I am the president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. This is our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Jason Sanders, who is the director of cultivation at Compassionate Cultivation, an indoor medicinal cannabis cultivation facility in Texas, who's also uh, currently building a greenhouse uh, facility to grow medicinal cannabis. Hi, Jason. How's it going? Uh, hello, Naughty. It's going great. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast here. Really looking forward to it. Me too. It's so great to have you on our What Plants Crave podcast series. You know, I'm really excited to learn more about you, uh, about the plants you grow, and the quirks of growing your plants indoors and in the future in a greenhouse. So to just get started and to acquaint our listeners uh, with you and what you do, uh, tell us about yourself, about compassionate cultivation, what got you interested in horticulture and growing plants in the first place, and what does compassionate cultivation do, and what do you do there? Yeah, well, uh, so I'm the director of cultivation. Uh, here at Compassionate Cultivation, and uh, we're one of the three medical cannabis licensed facilities in the state of Texas. Uh, it, it, it's been a long, a long time coming to get to where I'm at right now. Ever since uh, really I was a child, I've always been interested in plants. I've always been an outdoors kid kind of growing up, playing in the creeks and the fields of Oklahoma. You know, to be honest with you, how I got into growing, uh, got got into horticulture was through cannabis. I always being an outdoorsman. I, uh, and back in the day, I guess I was introduced personally to cannabis at a younger age. And back at that time, all cannabis pretty much came with seeds. And, uh, so I think it was pretty natural to want to just sprout those seeds and grow them, especially when you're living in Oklahoma in a more of a rural community. So, um, I, I, I owe a lot to cannabis itself, the plant, to getting me into horticulture because that stuck with me all the way to this day. And um, so going through high school, you know, at that time thinking about, okay, what do I want to go to college for? Immediately, the green light came on in my head of saying, hey, like, put yourself in horticulture in a greenhouse environment. Um, 
that's where I just felt most comfortable. And uh, so that's what I did. I went to school at Texas State University here. Um, got my undergrad in ag business and management and then got a master's in ag education. Started teaching as an adjunct professor after that. I had the opportunity to move to California in 2012. And at that point, I was just, I, I thought the, uh, all the cannabis gods started calling to me then and said, okay, now's your time to start doing this professionally. And uh, so got into uh, the cannabis uh, space professionally there um, in California. And then the rest was history. Uh, this, this job opportunity opened up for me in 2019. And I was able to move back to Austin, which is my home here and, uh, and do what I've what I love doing. That is awesome. I didn't know your origin story. Uh, I'm really glad I asked that. <laughs> yeah. and, and what's funny, Nadia, is the company I worked for in Mendocino, we were uh, Origins Mendo. So um, yeah, little play nice. off the words there. Nice. Yeah. What do you consider the main benefits of growing medicinal cannabis indoors um, or, or for that matter, any crop in horticulture? Why, why grow in a greenhouse indoors as opposed to outside in a field? The biggest is a control factor. Being able to control the environment in which we're growing our crops is huge. And by doing so, by having tight controls within your crop, you're able to have consistency year round. And, and that's huge. Uh, for us right now, we, we do five cycles a year in these rooms, pushing almost six cycles. Originally, being an outdoor farmer, you'd get one season for a full term, uh, maybe split that into two seasons. And so indoors, we get more control, we get more consistency year round, and we just get more crop cycles in the year. We're limited outdoors to the number of crop cycles, once light depping started, then that changed a little bit. Obviously, uh, we we're getting more crop cycles in the year through light depth, either hoops or any of the greenhouses. But the, the biggest thing that I love about indoor growing is just the control factor, the, the ability to really be able to have that consistency in your crop year round. Why for cannabis is it important to grow year round? I mean, it's a crop, you know, right? I mean, the product you you dry it or you extract it, the oils from it. Like, why do we need to grow it year round? Why can't we just have one season of cannabis? Yeah, and, and, and that's a great question. And you can if you're able to produce enough volume to handle your demand within that year. Uh, if, if, if you can do that in one large harvest by having multiple crops within the year that also spaces out our, our workflow as a, as a team. Um, and so it makes it a lot easier and manageable to get those multiple cycles a year rather than having one massive push uh, in fall. Uh, harvest is specifically the challenge there, right? When you're growing a whole bunch of cannabis, yeah. um, you got to really load up that harvest line in the fall where here we can run a small team and get multiple harvest a year and not have to really load up on labor. We also have patients that are buying year round and we're not a, a flower market, but within flower markets, it's nice to have fresh flower year round for your patients that are constantly buying throughout the year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually a really interesting point about in a field growing outside and having this really big push that I, I guess one of the benefits also of growing indoors in a greenhouse is just having a consistent labor force, right? Is that there's jobs available to people year round and it's not 
seasonal jobs. Um, I know out here in California, we have this big rush, right? In the fall of people that come from all over the world to help with harvest and drying and trimming and packaging and everything. And then they leave and they go back to wherever they came from. Um, But by growing indoors in greenhouses consistently year round, you get to work with the same people year round. You get to build their skill sets. They have um, stable jobs. That, That seems like a big benefit. Yeah, the stability is huge right there, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the goal is to maintain a stable team that's with this for, for the long term. So, yeah, year-round production is huge as far as that, the workflow and stability of, of jobs. In just the terms of nuts and bolts of growing indoors versus outdoors, what, which, one is, which one is harder? <laughs> um. <laughs> I bet it's different for different reasons. Yeah, they both have their challenges. I would, I would honestly say that growing outdoors is is more challenging as it relates to pest pressure, Mm. as it relates to trying to, you know, really be able to dial in your specific cultivar to the environment in which it likes. You're kind of more at the mercy of Mother Nature, obviously outdoors. So. Yeah, you're going to get handed whatever she wants to hand you, whether that's a big rainstorm before harvest or you, you name it, hot, hot temps in the summer and high humidity. And so I think as an outdoor grower, you're constantly kind of really trying to work within Mother Nature's parameters. And as uh, far as indoor, we're able to really have that control factor. However, when you are growing indoors, now you have more mechanical issues that you got to work with. So you've got to really know HVAC. You've got to know dehumidification, as do you know, if anybody I'm talking to. So you kind of wear different hats, right? As a farmer, if you're an indoor farmer, you wear the hat of really understanding all of your mechanics that you're working Mm. with. And, And same with the greenhouse. And then as an outdoor farmer, you're wearing the hat of, of, of working within what mother nature's given you. Being more of like a soil scientist and yeah, I don't know, a gambler yeah. in some ways, hedging your bets against mother nature. Yeah. And yeah. I actually come from more of the soils background prior to growing cannabis. I was in uh, the composting industry. And so I was setting up a lot of food waste composting programs throughout the country and so I was kind of on that leg of it, of always recycling organics and focusing heavy on the soil. As an outdoor grower, I was big time into the organic matter content and the microbial community within our soil, um, where now as an indoor grower, it's a little less focus on the soil, I would say. I've been able to focus a lot more on, on really soluble nutrients, on salts that I've never historically really worked much with uh, being an outdoor grower. Interesting. I mean, is there a place for, for soil media in an indoor growing facility? What does that, how, how is that different? I mean, do you water it differently? Do you, I mean, again, it seems like another place where you can control the inputs and control the quality at the root zone. Do you, but, but it seems like more growers do sort of inert medias and then uh, supplement, right. With, chemical nutrients and fertilizers. So I, I do think there is a place for the focus on the soil and an indoor environment and in a greenhouse. I, I still believe that as a farmer, we need to be just as much concerned with 
the 50% of the plant that's below that soil surface as much as the 50% of, of above the soil surface. However, I, I did battle root aphids for about a year. So root aphids have been a, uh, a bit of a scare for us here in order to keep our soil in our grow rooms from one batch to the next. It's, I, I view that as a risk now where historically I've always viewed that as, as an asset. And, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, as we develop our plants within soil, the soil microbial community really matures and we start developing the microbial community that, that the plant loves. Like cannabis is specifically shooting out exudates out its roots to feed literally the bacteria, fungi, nematodes, and protozoa that it specifically mm. wants to get nutrients from. And so we've always viewed soil within our grow as one of our biggest assets. However, after getting root aphids, it was such a tough battle to challenge these pests because they were inoculating every new batch that was going into flower, especially in flower weeks one through really four, we would see massive uh, infestations and these root aphids would just grow wings and they would fly into our veg room and inoculate new batches. And so one of the ways that we had to combat these root aphids was cleaning out our rooms really good in between cycles. So that means changing out our soil, but also stopping to really ultimately get rid of them. We had to stop our flower production, stop the flyers, stop those adult winged root aphids from flying into our veg rooms to inoculate those new batches that were going to go in the flower room. So that's how we ultimately beat them. But because of going through that experience and given how difficult it was to treat for root aphids, uh, I'm very hesitant to now recycle soil indoors or within a greenhouse. Hmm. I think it can be done, but I do think that it needs to be done through a thermophilic composting process in order to kill off. If you have any pests like root aphids or weed seeds, we've got to we got to send that through a composting process thermophilically, and uh, and then reintroduce that back into our grow as as a clean media. Interesting. Well, they got the right man for the job to figure that out. If you decide to do that. <laughs> oh, thank. Well, that is going to be a goal in the future. Is still composting our, our, our media because there is a lot of value I believe through the microbial community by, by doing that. You know, we, we, we grow a three month, four month crop at the end of that crop cycle, we, you know, either compost or dispose of that soil. And it took us that much time to build Mm. valuable soil biology. And so we've got to utilize that biology back in our grow. We just need to do it in a clean, safe manner. So you guys are growing medicinal cannabis in Texas, where I imagine the rules and regulations are pretty strict in terms of percentages of THC that is detectable. Just from your guys' perspective, and, and you having grown in Mendocino, which I'm assuming was, was recreational as well, what are the specific challenges about growing medicinal cannabis versus recreational cannabis, whether that's in Texas or, or anywhere else in the country? The, I think the challenges really come from the regulatory side. The, the difference between really for us in Texas, it, it's our, we, we have a pretty robust industrial hemp program here. 
and then we have a very highly regulated medical cannabis program. And in my eyes as a farmer, there's not a whole lot of difference between those two plants. In fact, there's not a lot of difference at all given the, their origin. And so it, the challenge really kind of comes from more of a compliance side to make sure that we're meeting uh, the re- regulatory structure in which our program is set. The other, I, I think, though, that there is a, a differentiation between medical cannabis and recreational as it relates to quality control and testing. I do view medical cannabis, obviously, as a medicine, and therefore it should be following some of the uh, highest, best sanitary and cleanliness standards in our industry. And so I do, I do hold medical cannabis to, to the highest standard as it relates to sanitation practices, microbials, uh, and, and ultimately just lab testing at the end of the crop cycle. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because, I mean, <clears throat> my, my two sort of follow-up questions are, what is the difference between medicinal cannabis, which has a high CBD, low THC content, and hemp? <laughs> Is that a dumb question? There's, I mean, what's... <laughs> uh, I, I would say tomato, tomato. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, yeah, like for, for real. So we classify uh, our uh, plants as like type one being high THC, low CBD, type two, kind of an equal balance THC, CBD, type three, high CBD, low THC. And so the type three seeds that we originally sourced, I mean, those are hemp. Those are hemp cultivars. Hmm. Those are below 0.3% THC. Now, between the three types in our facility, we don't treat them differently. I mean, those three plants, are they, they act very similar. Uh, if anything, the only difference that I might have seen over historically over like a, what's called a hemp plant, you know, typically I, I think hemp plants have a little stronger structure naturally to them. They might need a little less trellising than maybe some of these, huh. you know, more uniquely bred cultivars have high THC. So I I do think that we might see more historical kind of land race traits within those hemp cultivars, which would be strong, strong branching. Hmm. Um, Yeah, because with with hemp, it's, it's mostly the fiber, right? I mean, that's what I think of with hemp is, is that it's a fiber source, not necessarily a flower source. Not not that that's how it's being cultivated everywhere right now but yeah yeah historically i think that we have maintained a a stronger fiber source for hemp and then now just real recently within the last couple decades i think uh we were starting to see the hemp flower become a lot more popular and so breeders specifically are breeding for flower within these hemp cultivars so just finding those Uh, cultivars that are able to yield higher yields have color to the flower the biggest thing i think in the hemp world is it's got to have good nose on it it's got to smell good uh, for hemp flower Um, i think a lot of hemp flower historically kind of has more of that hay grass type of smell and um so I think what breeders are really looking for these days is trying to find those uh, those specific phenos uh, that have high terpene values to them. Can you and, graft a hemp and and cannabis plant? Like uh, to get well, like a sturdy stalk and then get like the top flower being different? 
yes, you can. We've actually grafted uh, three different cultivars on one uh, one rooting stock. Really? Yes, and tested them, and all three cultivars showed the same potency and terpene results as the parent flower. So we had a type one, type two, type three on a type one rooting <laughs> yes. stock. That's and, a cocktail plant, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, true cocktail plant. Absolutely a true cocktail plant. And that rooting stock did not influence the flower. So wow. you can have, and it's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We did it for fun, actually. Like we, yeah. we, we, we didn't quite know what the, um, what the production use would be for the grafting project. We just kind of wanted to answer exactly the question you asked of, you know, what, what, what happens when you put a high CBD flower on a high THC rooting stock? What, mm-hmm. you know, and it's wild. Uh, the, the, uh, the fruiting stock, uh, represented its, its parent flower material. And then the, um, the rooting stock didn't influence that. So it, the, one of the reasons though, not now that I'm thinking back on that project, cause that was during our root aphid times was we thought we had a cultivar that was a little, uh, it still had root aphids on it, but it was less prone to getting mass infestation to root aphids compared to the other cultivars. So we said, okay, well, what if we took that as a rooting stock for root aphids and then, you know, and then just grafted on our other cultivars and, and, and it worked, but two things, root aphids still would go to that cultivar, maybe a little less than the others, but they still uh, attack those roots. The second thing was just timing. It took so long for those flower stalks to root onto that rooting stalk and then to make an actual production plan out of it just wasn't economical. Yeah. I was wondering that. Cause like when I think about, you know, traditional grafted plants, I, I mostly think about orchards, right? Yeah. Apple orchards and, and grape orchards or vines um, and, and trees basically where you want the rootstock and then you want like the specific type of apple to grow yeah. um, from the branches, right? From the top yeah. of, of the plant. But those plants obviously stay in the ground for 20 or, or years or maybe more or whatever. So the energy and inputs that, that it takes to, to graft that plant will yield for a long time. But yeah. Uh, is it worth it to do that for a cannabis plant that is going to die in six months or three months? Yeah. Well, that's right. And and that's the big question. Now, one of the things that we are really interested in was if we can, and and if a grower out there finds a specific pheno that is resistant to root aphids, it might be beneficial to within your mother's stock plants produce your moms on that rooting stock. Oh, there you go. Uh, because, yeah. you know, we, going back to my point earlier about time of, of soil within your grow can be risky. So the longer that time of that soil in your grow, the more risk you're taking for a root aphid infestation. And so, um, and so, it, so you could, in essence, um, keep mother stock around longer and reduce your risk if you had it on a rooting stock that was resistant to root aphids. Yeah, that's smart. And, I, and I'll tell you, Nadi, some growers are even changing up their entire production model because of root aphids. They're not even running moms anymore. They're really? literally taking cuttings off of their production batch plants 
before they go into flower and those cuttings are the next production batches uh, next production batch basically so there's no mother stock you're just running um you're running clones off of your production batches hmm. instead of a mother stock which is smart i mean we and any growers listening to this is probably shaking their head like yep we know because those root aphids that's a serious problem in our industry they're not easy to get rid of and i didn't realize and, they were so pervasive oh gosh we i will send you a picture after this feel free to post it. I mean, okay. it, it, the root ball is unbelievable. You, you look at it from a distance and it looks like a normal root ball and then you zoom in on it and you go, oh my gosh, there's billions wow. of aphids. And Aphids uh, are evil. They're born pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when they get mad, they grow wings and fly off. <laughs> yeah. And they don't even need males. I mean, you know, go figure this world, you know, is getting, you know, maybe rightfully so not even needing males anymore. But in uh, the, the aphid world's already surpassed this. I mean, seriously, if there was aliens on this planet right now, they're in the shape and form of root aphids. Uh, they might be root aphids. Yeah, they are. I mean, they already are. I mean, we're collecting we're, data on you. Yeah. I mean, we're scared of them. It's that bad. And I like, you know, any other pests, you name it. I mean, thrips even, right? White flies, spider mites, not a problem. I mean, we have good solutions for those pests. Root aphids, that's tough. I mean, we- Why? We, Why are they so hard compared to everything else? Well, several reasons. Uh, one, I think just contact is hard to get to them, right? They're, oh, in, sure. the, they're in the rhizosphere. So when we do a soil drench with like a botanagard mixed with a azagard that works, but you gotta, you gotta really stay on top of that drench and you've got to really knock down that population. And then you've the, the like to your point earlier, that they, they're born pregnant, uh, they can grow wings and fly. And so that's just a hard pest to manage. Yeah. I mean, there, now here's the interesting thing about root aphids. I don't know any farmer that's actually lost a crop to root aphids. All right, we managed our crop with root aphids. I mean, we had billions. I mean, they were all on the table. We did daily soap sprays on our tables to kill these root aphids. And our crop continued flourishing. I mean, we really didn't see much of a yield decrease from it. So why get rid of them? Why not live with them? Well, we live with them because they're like that pesty roommate that someday you hope to not have to live with. That never washed their dishes. <laughs> yeah, never washes the dishes. They're always, you got to clean up after them every day. And that's exactly what we did. We had to clean up that's after brood aphids every day. And quite frankly, it was just tough looking at so many bugs every day in a beautiful, clean yeah. indoor environment. It's just like, it's counterintuitive to what, you're trying to accomplish and do but it has gotten to that point where at some point you just kind of wave the white flag and say okay we're here together now and i actually wonder because we lived so many generations through these root aphids i wonder if there was ever a symbiotic relationship that was developed between the plant and root aphids and that's oh, wow. something I think in the future we need to really look at because again, I mean, we, we, we didn't lose a crop. I, I wouldn't say our plants were as healthy as what they look now, but they're still able to produce. So it, uh, there, any it, different quality of the flower. 
I mean, we're still hitting between 120, 145 grams a square foot. The quality was still there uh, from potency and terpenes. So yeah, there's just not a lot, but, but scientifically, I can't wrap my brain around why it would be uh, that beneficial to the plant, given that it, they're eating their roots, right? So it just, it's like, it's like trying to run a marathon in a shoe too small. I mean, you just, it's, you're going to hurt at some point in time. And so I don't know, there's a lot of research that's needed with. Um, Could it be helping the plant grow more lateral roots or yeah. maybe helping with oxygenation of the root zone? Like, I don't know. Yeah. You, you, you know, Naughty, it's like what we say in academia, more research is needed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the truth is it's, you know, a, a decade ago, I don't think we we're really talking much about root aphids from, uh, you know, so I think it's a fairly new pest in the cannabis space. I think uh, they came over from rice patties. They're more of an aquatic. And so like they do like a higher moisture content, I feel like in the in the pot uh, when you dry it out a little bit, I think it makes them mad. And so, um, <laughs> that when they fly a, away to go find a wetter place to a live, wetter plant. exactly, exactly. So they're, they're, but it, it's, they're worthy and put it this way. I gained a lot of respect for them. Okay. All right. Like when you're battling them for a year and a half, like we did, it was, it became a, uh, uh, a respect issue with these pests because they're so hard to get rid of. And yeah. again, the, the way we got rid of them was we, uh, we got off the treadmill is what we call it. So we had to stop the production cycle and main, really just let all the flower rooms finish their cycles, clean them out fully, keep all of our genetics in veg and keep those plants healthy. Uh, start, start from new cuttings and then we're good to go. Knock on wood, we haven't seen them since. Typically, root aphids are more of a cannabis-specific pest, too, so they're going to come in on clones, or they're going to come in on other growers or, or, or your regulators. Yeah. You know? Oh, really? Yeah, because your regulators are going from one farm to the next. Oh, of course. Yes. And so we told they need to be regulated from going from one farm to the next. That's exactly right. (laughs) And and in California, I remember talking with some some of the inspectors that were very conscious of that, and they would only go see one farm a day. And that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That gives me some hope that the regulators are working with us. We did talk to ours, and we said, hey, please only you know one a day if you're going to do an inspection. You can imagine we're in Texas; we get a lot of random inspections. We have a, we have an inspection almost every month, so a little bit different than wow. California when I was there, and it would be like one inspection a year, maybe. California is the overregulated state. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come to Texas, where we're one one a month and only three licenses, and right. Yeah, <laughs> there's always an exception to the rule, right? That's right. You know, we'll put <laughs> as many pipes in the ground to pump oil, but once we start talking about growing plants, oh no, we oh, need that's to really scary, regulate right? that. Yeah, so. <laughs> You know, I want to ask you about breeding real quickly, because that's something that has always impressed me about you guys is that you're really thinking about the genetics and thinking about the environment, the natural environment outside that you are 
contending with when growing this plant and coming from Mendocino, where we've developed a lot of genetics out here in Northern California, right? That the country and the world has been enjoying for a long time, all these different strains and cultivars. When you, if you try to grow that same strain or cultivar in Texas, I mean, what are those challenges and and why are you guys breeding and creating new genetics for yourselves? Can you expand on that just a little bit? So first and foremost is we're trying to create genetics that work within our environment. You know, we're just trying to create plants that are happy to grow within that Texas hot and humid environment. We're Which not is not a- Mendocino or Humboldt. That's right. Exactly. And so I, when I look at a plant, I like to think, well, okay, well, that's more of that kind of more sativa dominant, thin leaf, you know, allow that air to come through, allow just kind of more of a, you know, Southern plant is what I'm kind of thinking about. And so it's kind of hard right now because we're not yet in our greenhouse. We'll be in the greenhouse this next year uh, around March time. So like what we've done now is, is we've really kind of increased our environmental temperatures and humidity, especially out the gate and flower. We're, we're growing between 80 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit for the first uh, couple weeks in flower. And, um, and our humidity is pretty high too. I mean, we're 65 to 72% humidity uh, during those times. And so really what we're trying to do is find the plants that really work well in that environment. And, and we're looking for the plants that uh, have high vigor that uh, we use the term a lot satelliting or praying where the leaves are standing straight up in the air. Just they look happy. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're breeding for those plants. Um, a couple of reasons on that is one, we can save money if we develop plants that can grow in these hotter temperatures. We can find cultivars that grow better in our summertime. And then maybe we're finding cultivars that are better suited for our wintertime that, and those might be more of your Northern California plants. Smart. You know, and that way we've got kind of our, nor- our, our winter cultivars and our summer. And we're, we, we've got- Like winter made- wheat and summer wheat. Yeah, 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 go figure. <laughs> uh, and I will say that it's real easy for us as cultivators with our program, because we're not a flower market. We're just straight oil production. Mm. And so we can run a reduced number of cultivars. We don't have to have a whole lot of different mother stock to keep our flower market happy with all this diversity. All right. We're so really, we're just honing in on a couple cultivars that grow really well, like what we were saying in the summer and a couple that grow really well in the winter. And we'll just run those. And so it's easier as a farmer growing for an oil market because you can really just identify a few uh, phenos within those cultivars and create those as your production mothers and and just run those plants. So tell us a little bit about the in-house experiments that you guys do. You know, um, that's another thing that always, uh, I always enjoy talking to you about is I always feel like you guys are just running different tests and trying different things. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about why you do those experiments? Maybe what you've, you've played with, um, and what you've learned about the various technologies uh, that are being promoted for this industry or even being, uh, utilized anything you can share good tidbits yeah. for our listeners. Yeah, definitely. So we, we've been very fortunate and lucky to, uh, have a research partnership with Fluence. Fluence manufactures LED lighting actually here in Austin, Texas. So they're just right down the street from our facility. So it was a, 
it was a natural fit for us to partner together. Our interests were aligned through research because we're obviously, we want to learn uh, how to optimize our, our plant production. And we really need good quality research in order to do that. So Fluence actually uh, conducts research studies within our grow rooms. And so some of those studies have really looked at light intensity. Uh, we used to cultivate uh, under about 100, I'm sorry, 1,000 PPFD. We'd start in propagation at 150 and then go to about 600, 450 to 600 in veg and then and flower be around a thousand and and that that grows great cannabis like that 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 works just fine but what we started learning was is we wanted to ask the question like what's the ceiling for light intensity for cannabis I mean cannabis can take the light I mean even more something than like corn or these other crops yeah it's amazing a, a beast and so we, we did different various studies, I think all the way up to around 2,500 micromoles. And what wow. we found, yeah, I mean, it's super, super bright grow rooms. I mean, they were just- <laughs> Were there the strong enough sunglasses? Yeah, you got to wear your LED glasses going in that room. Um, and what we found was there was about a 1%, uh, and I believe Fluence is calling it like the 1% rule right now. And I don't even think it's fluence. I think it's kind of a, across the, the lighting world community. Every 1% increase in PPFD will correlate from 1,000 up to 1,800 will correlate to 1% increase in yield. Um, that's the same for tomatoes. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. So it's great to hear that. And so we kind of leveled out at around 1800 we still saw increases in yield above 1800 but it wasn't that one percent increase it started to kind of bell curve yeah yeah taper off a little bit i personally like to grow in 1500 micromoles i feel like the plants really just perform well when you start pumping that much light on that plant you've got to dial you've got to make sure you don't miss an irrigation schedule right or cycle right you've got to make sure that your nutrients are spot on and I mean your plants pumping as much as they can and so you can't miss can't miss the beat at all did Uh, you adjust co2 for the higher light levels uh, CO2, uh, we did, so we would start off at around a thousand PPM at the, out the gate and flower. And then we would pump that up to about 1400 mid flower and then start okay. dipping it back down. Our facility is not sealed up. Well, and we constantly have over a thousand PPM of CO2 in this place. Like we're trying, <laughs> we've been trying to find the leak and we can't find one. So we huh. just thinking that we're just not sealed up good enough in the in the grow room so anyway so co2 we're always above a thousand even at night and that's not necessarily our preferred growing parameters but it's what we're currently growing in until we get that co2 under control you do any adjustments to temperature because you know temperature co2 and light are really co- closely correlated with each other. So would you also increase the temperature under those higher light levels? So, yeah. So uh, temperatures like in, in, in that, that around the 80 degree range yeah, uh, yeah. out the gate and flower, the highest would be 85. So we're trying to stay below 85, above 80. So realistically, it's like 80 to 82 or so for the first couple of weeks in flower. And then we do start to drop it. And it's really the first like three weeks of uh, week four is when we start to kind of drop our temps a little bit um, okay. uh, to the to high 70s, low 80s. But we stayed that all the way through flower, humidity as well. 
uh, stays kind of high there at 69, 72% or so. And we, we start dropping that as well in week four. So as the temperature drops, our humidity drops. What we're looking for is VPD while we're looking at those correlations, starting off flower around like a 1.1 VPD, and then kind of raising that as we go through the crop cycle, maxing out at, at a 1.4. And so, yeah, and, and the idea on the temperature towards the end of the crop to drop that temperature, drop that humidity, uh, we're just really trying to mimic that fall season, but we're also really trying to pump out some interesting colors out of the flowers at that time, trying to get the terpene values to really increase and not volatile, you know, gas off on us. What, so do you, what would you we, tell growers who are uh, hesitant to grow their cannabis at 80 degrees and upwards who 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 are who are afraid of that 80 degree threshold uh and and want to stay down at 75 degrees or lower what would you tell them i i I would tell them just to give it a try i mean realistically you know like like plants don't lie like they will tell you if they're happy or not and when we see plants just satellite and raising their leaves up to the sky we're we're staying on that course and right now, I mean, we go in our grow rooms that are in that 80 degree range and we have some of the happiest looking plants. The other thing I would tell a grower is by running a little hotter in your grow rooms, you're going to save some money on HVAC. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just it gives us an ability to save a few dollars here in our operational expense. So have yeah. at it, you yeah. know, do it. Well, uh, that was a really good uh, segue, Jason. Thank you uh, for my next question, which has to do with efficiency. What efficiency measures or or metrics do you guys track? Do you measure energy and water use? Are there other efficiency goals that you guys have within Compassionate? Yeah, Nadia, uh, we're really just now kind of dialing in on on the efficiency part to our grow. A couple things that we're really that we've been doing for a while now is we look at more of uh, an API per square foot over a okay. period of time. So API is our active pharmaceutical ingredient, and so for us, it's THC and CBD. Yeah. At the end of the day, as a cultivator, that's what we're producing, especially being just an oil market. So we look at how much THC CBD per square foot did each batch yield. And, and we have an in-house lab, so it's easy for us to kind of take a total weight, get a lab sample, get that percent of THC CBD and apply that to uh, uh, API per square foot. And then over a given period of time, so like our crop cycle is a 96-day total crop cycle time. So we'll run three-week crop, three-week veg, and then eight-week flower. And uh, so we measure kind of our API per square foot over time. And then we look at that from a cost perspective. Uh, That's labor and total uh, consumables for that batch. Yeah. But the next step that we've got to start looking at is kind of where you're getting to is, okay, now that we've got our baselines, because that's really what we're establishing right now is those baselines. Then we're going to look at like our efficiency far as uh, energy and water and really carbon footprint is what I'm really looking at in the future. Um, I'm not sure uh, exactly how to fully and accurately equate our carbon footprint as a company, but I want to go ahead and start doing that and start putting a baseline down on that. 
we in the cannabis industry, I think we all hold a responsibility to decreasing our, our carbon output and our, which would be our energy consumption and our, our water use. You know, we, we as farmers have got to be focusing on the next generation of farmers, and we've got to be putting in play practices that will allow us to continue to grow this crop efficiently into the future. So that's where it's, it's really dear to my heart on trying to measure the carbon footprint and seeing how we can over time start to decrease that and hopefully someday be net positive carbon, be, uh, be paid for being a carbon farmer um, and uh, as well as being net uh, water positive as well. We do measure our water use right now. We do it on a daily basis as we fill up our batch tanks. The majority of our water comes from uh, rainwater and HVAC and uh, condensate recapture. Nice, nice. So, yeah, we barely ever turn on our, our well to fill up our stock tank. Every That's day, we're, awesome. yeah, we're filling it up from HVAC uh, recapture and, uh, and the rainwater. And, and we rarely ever have rain here. So it's pretty much all HVAC. And we just got some uh, new dehumes in. And uh, before we had floor dehumes and we weren't capturing the collection from those. But with these new... Uh, uh, ceiling mounted dehumes will be plumbing those into our HVAC collection tank as well. So I think we're about nice. to even see more water use. So that's going to be huge for us is just recycling all of our water and maintaining that practice. I mean, I love, I love hearing that because, you know, that is one of the potential ad benefits of growing in an enclosed environment like you guys are with an HVAC system that is condensing that water out of the air to, to close the loop, right? Yeah, on on water right. is that, yeah. I mean, 95%, if not more of the water that you irrigate with just gets breathed out, transpired yeah. by the plants and then recaptured by the HVAC system. You know, I know there's a lot of focus on energy with indoor agriculture at large, but it's agriculture and yeah. agriculture is responsible for using 65 to 70% of all of our freshwater resources. I mean, if, if we can help solve that problem by growing indoors, whatever it is, lettuce or cannabis or tomatoes, I mean, that's a huge win for society, I think. Yeah, yeah, massive win. Um, and I think that's a big advantage. And as we go into the future with controlled environmental ag production is our ability to close the loop. Yeah, I mean, in essence, the only water that should really be leaving the facilities here is the water within the plant tissues that that we're yeah. selling. Right? All yeah. other water should be captured and reused. Um, there's still gonna be some water in the in the soil in the pots. But as you go to harvest and dispose of that. But even that, like, like I was saying earlier, we should be able to reuse our soil, compost it, and then bring it back in. Yeah, we, we have a responsibility as farmers to do that. Like that, that's on us to, to make that happen. Do you guys filter that water that you're collecting from condensate? Yeah, so it's really good water, uh, but we do send it through a UV light just to kill any bacterial development that might have developed in the pipes uh, yeah, between yeah. those. And then we also have a carbon sediment uh, filter that we send it through because okay. uh, th that all goes in the same collection tank as our rainwater does. And so that's why we go through UV and carbon sediment filters for that. Perfect. No RO? 
Um, so our well water, we have RO on the well okay. water. And that's kind of one of those things where I'm like, hey, we barely turn that on. Nice. Um, because there is that wastewater component to that that we're cognitive of. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Kind of a switch of gears of questions. Do you consider indoor agriculture, especially, I mean, you can talk uh, indoor agriculture, horticulture, control environment, ag at large, if you want, or be specific to cannabis, but do you consider it a collaborative or competitive industry? Uh, I, I think both. I think it's collaborative as, as a whole. And, you know, especially like, you know, when, when we're at conferences, I feel like we have a lot of good grower talks. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's certain spaces where it's collaborative and then there's certain spaces where it might be more competitive. Yeah. And so. Um, what are people competing over in the space? You know, I, yeah, I, I think they're competing over efficiencies. I think they're, you know, trying to trying to create the best quality product at the lowest price so that they can hold market share. I mean, that is the goal. Yeah. And and I think that there's certain insider trade secrets that companies don't want to release because they think that that might then give their competitors a, another An advantage. advantage. Yeah. yeah. So I. I don't know. I, I, I'm always on kind of the fence on that. And, um, and, and I, so I, I get both sides of the fence. Yeah. So that's why I'm just kind of standing on that fence and don't know yeah. which side to jump on. But, um, <laughs> well, you're uh, talking to me today. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your collaboration on that. I hope, uh, I hope some of your listeners get some valuable input out of our conversation today because everything I know as a farmer I learned from somebody else, mm. right? Or learn through experience. And, yep. and, I, and I think it's important to carry that on and keep passing knowledge as best as we can. I mean, at the end of the day, we got to feed the world, right? And so let's yep. all do that. Let's do that more to collaborative um, effort. And but, something yeah. I, you know, I, I, I have always appreciated about the cannabis industry specifically, you know, um, are, are its origins and its roots, uh, just going full circle back to things we've already said, but uh, it, just that sense of community, right? It's always, it, it has come from a, a, a place in the heart, right? And, and of compassion, uh, yeah. which, which your guys' name so, so aptly puts. And I don't want the industry to lose sight of of where it started or, or at right. least where how it got to where it is now which is yeah. that it's a medicine that it's about social equity it's about community um and and i i i don't want it to fall into the the competition trap uh, right yeah 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 I, i'm right there with you you know i i think that the cannabis space has as it relates to agriculture, the cannabis farmers and the cannabis space has always been a really interesting one, mainly because it, it's been illegal for a while. And so right. the, it, it developed community out of necessity. Yeah, people yeah. trying to, you know, work together to, to, to get a crop out to the market. So yeah, let's just put our fingers crossed here and hope that uh, we move forward in a, in a good direction as an industry. And I think a lot of us OGs out there will try to always keep it that way. Yeah. So on that note, what have you seen in the industry recently that gives you hope uh, that it's moving in the right direction? Yeah. Uh, the scalability of it, I, in, in, hmm. in two ways, I, I see, 
local family owned farms still surviving and still getting good product out to the market. And, and so I, I think that there's always going to be kind of this craft cannabis market that will be, that will be served by smaller farms. And so we're still seeing that alive today. And I'm really happy about that. Uh, and then we're also seeing large MSOs, multi-state operators that are really creating some unique technological advances as relates to scalability. And so it's really, I'm excited to see kind of both sides of our industry develop and then work together. I mean, I think the small to medium farmer can always learn from the large farmer, but I'm really hoping that that uh, the craft market will hold strong because I think then we'll be maintaining more jobs within our industry. Yeah. How do you think the industry is going to evolve, evolve in the next five to 10 years? Is every state going to be legal in the uh, next 10 years? Uh, let's see. Are you saying five or 10 years? Which one? Oh, I don't know. Take your pick. Yeah. 10 years. Yes. Five years. I don't know. Not quite. Maybe, you know, let's hope. I do think we're going to see federal legalization within five years. I think it's going to still be left up to the states act. So it's going to be states. Yeah. Yeah, And, and I also think that it's going to take a little while, while for interstate commerce to happen because all of these states have put together a good amount of resources to control their own program or to regulate their own program. And I doubt the federal government really wants to interfere with the state's governments that have put a lot of resources into this. Yeah, I hope not. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see it still be detained within state borders for a while. But I do think we're going to see some federal decriminalization on the national level. We'll see a rescheduling. It won't be a schedule one drug. I I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the benefit of it being federally legal? Uh, research, right? Research. Like that's yeah. the big research, right? We need academic so research. Bad. We need, <laughs> we need peer reviewed research. And I mean, we do great research here, no doubt, but you know, I just really, I love peer reviewed research. I mean, I'd, you know, I mean that I have a lot of trait, uh, trust and faith within that system. And, and I want to see that become the dominant research component in cannabis. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. Um, I don't think anyone can argue that we need more research on this plant from so the many other, angles. Yeah, the other big federal component would be for banking. Yeah, you know, it's just like, yeah, we're just a cash business. And I feel for a lot of even mom and pop shops that are still having to deal with that. Yeah, that's got to be a nightmare. What What is something from traditional horticulture that you think could be applied to cannabis that you're not necessarily seeing? when we're just starting to see it, but tractors. <laughs> tractors? That tractors. is not what I expected you to say, I know, and I love I it. Know, but it's what we're seeing, right? Like when we think about traditional agriculture or horticulture, like yes. we think about road cropping and stuff, like we're starting to see that now. We're even starting to see aerial spraying of fields in Oklahoma. Wow. So, I mean, we're just seeing large scale now. And, uh, and so that's really interesting to see kind of the big ag practices coming into play in the cannabis space. 
traditional, traditional, even going way back, I, I hope we maintain genetic diversity in our industry. I hope we don't become like the Apple industry or any other big ag industry. Or just, or, yeah. yeah, it just becomes a few cultivars and then that's all we have. Like we're, we're really lucky right now to have such diversity of genetics because of the state borders we have to work within. That's um, a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about there being so many strains that you can't keep track of them as being a positive, but I yeah. can see that being a positive. Yeah. Yeah. So last official question for you, what do plants crave? Yeah, I love lots of love and attention, cool. right? Yes. I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, and what I mean by love and attention is just a lot of work, right? Like they need like plants and ultimately I think cannabis cultivates us. We don't cultivate the plant. Like we're here as servants to the plant. And so, you know, we have to get up every morning and be here early in the morning. We stay late nights, you know, I think, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, uh, but that's, you know, that's all because that's what the plant needs. I mean, plants crave that they, they, they love that that care right and so we've got to give that to them that that labor the i've always i've always been a soils farmer i've always looked at it from more of a microbial perspective so i think plants crave microbes microbes crave plants i think that symbiotic relationship's been a beautiful one that's been developed over the eons here and so i i do think plants crave microbial communities yeah, that, that, I think that's that, that's how what I'd stated that. And, and maybe with, cannabis craves root aphids. We don't and know. Maybe cannabis craves root aphids. Let's see where this conversation goes five years from now. You know? <laughs> we'll come back in five years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It sounds great. Be happy to. So, Jason, I just want to end the uh, podcast with you uh, and ask a few rapid fire questions that I hope will be fun uh yeah. answer as simply or as as in depth as you want uh okay so first question are plants introverts or extroverts oh they're they're introverts and then they'll also show their extrovert side when they're really happy what does that mean <laughs> well they're introverts the whole time like they don't really talk they don't tell you much they're kind of just like you know they're they're very quiet they're in their own little world but then when they're real happy, they talk to you. They're satellite and those leaves are straight up in the air and they're letting you know and they're partying and they're having a good time. So I think they're an introvert. And then when you get them really happy, they'll show that extrovert side to them. Nice. Nice. All right. Cool. Second question. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Or yes. Be part of a more, oh, yes. Okay. For sure. hundred percent. hundred percent. Food, fiber, fuel, medicine period. Yep. All of the above. All right. Last question. What side of greens goes best with barbecue and can it be grown indoors? <laughs> I'm going to go real Southern here. I'm going to say collard greens. Okay. And for sure it can be grown indoors. Year Hell round. yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when I come visit, you and you make me barbecue there's going to be a side of collard greens there's gonna be some good collards there for hell sure. yeah yeah okay, cool <laughs> yeah awesome well jason this has been so much fun and very informative i really appreciate you taking the time with us today thank you so much yeah vice versa thank you very much it was a lot of fun so we'll, we'll talk soon Nadia. thank you
That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Jason Sanders of Texas Original and Compassionate Cultivation for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Tyler Barras of Area 2 Farms. I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.